Welcome to page one. My name is Abhishek Mukund. We're joined today by Rachel Wellhausen, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Wellhausen wrote The Shield of Nationality When Governments Break Contracts with Foreign Firms, which won the Best Book Award from the International Political Economy Society. She received the Michael Wallerstein Award from the American Political Science Association for the best paper published in political economy in 2016. Her work can be found in the American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, Quarterly Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, just to name a few. Okay, thanks for your time today, Professor. Of course. The Trump administration has talked about changing much of the economic landscape. Trump, as a candidate, ran on the ideal of tearing up many currently held trade deals. Whether it's tariffs, trade packs, or sanctions, the Trump administration is using a combination of different trade policies to change the U.S. economy to their liking. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning. How would you characterize the administration's general goals when it comes to trade? So you would think that should be an easy question <laughs> to uh -huh. understand what, what an administration's goals are. Um, from folks who are inside the world of trade leading to economic growth and, and the kind of the traditional reasons we would want trades, it, it's hard to understand what the goals are. Mm -hmm. um, focus on deficits and bilateral relations rather than multilateral relations is, is new and different and, and hard to understand. Um, so I think uh, we've, in my field in international political economy, we've started to rethink that Trump is using trades in a very non-economic way. Mm -hmm. um, for the social or political implications um, and is willing to push on, on trade in ways that, for example, really hurt American farmers and then go into government coffers and, and subsidize American farmers, like soybean farmers mm -hmm. are getting extra payments because they're hurt by these trade policies. Yeah. So it's not clear that the trade policies are, are supporting his base or in an economic sense. So... Now we're unpacking like, okay, what are all the other reasons you use trade policies to, to promote a kind of social or political agenda? Um, so long story short, uh, it, it's pretty clear that his goal isn't, well, it's very clear his goal isn't the traditional Republican goal of free trade mm -hmm. <laughs> or even the Democratic version of that goal, which is free trade plus more worker protections and environmental protections. Um, the goal isn't um, to prioritize international cooperation and get the gains from international cooperation that we've gotten in the last 50 years. So instead, the goal is to prioritize domestic political outcomes mm -hmm. and um, make international cooperation secondary to that. It has been that the, the good thing about international trade is, right, you make some money through international trade so you can bring more money into the United States and grow jobs and bring consumer welfare improvements and things. And then there are distributional effects, but you can set some policies to take care of those to, to help out the, the losers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But instead, um, he's kind of flipped the transcript to say he's not thinking about prioritizing or accruing gains from international trade. He's thinking about like catering to these domestic interests without without, I don't know, giving up the goodies, I guess, <laughs> that could come from international <laughs> trade. So yeah, so it's 
it's strange. And uh, trade has also um, become a good buzzword or a good way to talk about mm, xenophobic or racial issues um, without necessarily saying those out loud. Um, although then that walks a fine line, right? Because it's hard to unpack what you're really dog whistling about. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly trade has become much more of this kind of cover for other social issues than it ever really has been in the recent past. So are there some benefits to using these bilateral uh, trade deals instead of these multilateral trade deals? Or like, has, has anything really changed in what Trump is doing in terms of like what he's getting out of these deals? Yeah, so Trump is leading sort of what we're calling a legalization backlash. So, um, and it's not just Trump. I mean, this is Brexit and there are other countries in the world that are saying, look, in the last 50 years um, in the international economy, what governments have often been doing is tying their hands to say, we're going to commit to these multilateral regimes like the WTO or trade regimes mm -hmm. and not protect our domestic population. And then we're going to do that in order to maximize benefits at the international level. So by this backlash against that, Trump is saying we're not going to make these legal commitments so much anymore. He likes this word deal, you know, whatever that really means. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so focusing on like bilateral relationships is kind of a return to power politics, or at least this seems to be what, what he's pushing to mm -hmm. say this is much more about like what we would call even like realism in in international relations where my country versus your country and which one is stronger and how much can I push you to 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 kind of give me what I want and to measure the the gains from trade on on a bilateral basis even mercantilism is another word we could use to say the gains from trade are no longer the gains that accrue to the whole world. They're my, it's a zero sum game now. It's if the US is losing or China's winning or vice versa, if it looks like China is winning, then it must, it must mean the US is losing. He's this bilateral focus isn't allowing like space in the, in the conversation to recognize that trade doesn't have to be zero sum. Mm -hmm. um, so, from an efficiency standpoint about like how one would run negotiations to try and if we were talking classical e economics here, it's, it's a strange way to play the game to, mm -hmm. to, to break up into bilateral negotiations, especially when you're the most powerful player in the room, like yeah. the United States. So it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's this backlash against laws in a way and a return to, power politics. Now, whether that's successful, I don't think it's going to be, but that, that seems to be the game that's going on here. Now, another thing that Trump talked about a lot on the campaign trail and has continued to talk about since his time in the presidency is trade deficits. And he treats it as a complete negative. And he's, I think he said something like, you know, we'd be making a lot of money if we didn't trade so much or something like that. Um, so what exactly are trade deficits and is the president right or wrong about his view of them? So it's so funny because a trade deficit means that we are buying stuff and getting stuff and trading money for stuff. <laughs> and so usually no one's putting a gun to your head to trade, right? Like these are voluntary transactions. Yeah. And so 
We in the United States are voluntarily getting more stuff from China and trading them our money for that stuff. And so when I make purchases, I feel better. I usually, you know, make a purchase because I want to. Yeah. So um, so it's, it is strange to, to, to just throw out the window the idea that we're voluntarily making purchases from China or, or so that a deficit can be fine because it's, <laughs> it's something we're choosing. And yeah. honestly, the United States has been in this privileged place in the world in which we have the U.S. dollar and the world is interested in holding U.S. dollars. And that gives us a lot of flexibility to get more stuff and trade our dollars for that stuff. So, um, yeah, deficit can sound like a, a nasty word and it, and it sucks to personally, you know, have deficits and be in debt and mi mixing, mashing those, that whole concept up. Um, but in, in reality, it's nice to have stuff <laughs> and voluntarily <laughs> buy stuff. So, um, yeah, the, the, the idea of focusing on deficits is very much a throwback to mercantilism, which is interesting. So that's a kind of a economic philosophy that Adam Smith pushed back on in mm -hmm. 1776 with the Wealth of Nations that he published. Before then, it was about, you know, which European country can get the most gold out of its colonies and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and when I would teach in the last years, usually you kind of cover mercantilism as a sort of a side in the beginning of class to say there used to be this way of thinking that just piling up dollars or gold or currency or whatever value, piling up currency would um, be the way to go. But the world had moved on from that. But, but, but a focus on deficits and much of the Trump administration talk around trade is really mercantilist. The idea that the way to win is to have a bigger pile of Scrooge McDuck, like <laughs> gold coins or something, rather than to have more stuff that you would willingly have. And, and it's, it's funny because, the, you know, trade, why is trade good? Because it improves consumer welfare because it brings a greater greater variety and better quality goods and services to individuals. Um, and if you're hoarding the dollars instead of getting the stuff, then you're not, you know, you're giving something up. And I don't know how much utility you really get out of a pile of dollars at, at the end of the day. So. so now in a couple of the answers we've had, a big player is, continues to be China. Um, and President Trump, you know, on the campaign trail, he said that China's raping us. Mm -hmm. um, which is a real <laughs> vague choice of words. But, yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think his goals are with China? And how is he trying to pressure them into fitting or conforming to what he wants them to do? Yeah, the, the, China, the China relationship is really complicated and made more complicated by the overlap with security issues, right? With the role of what China can and can't do with regard to North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one point that I think might sort of to turn your question into something that's more easily answerable, which is the classic trick, right? <laughs> um, U.S. companies have a lot of interest in China, right? Supply mm. chain politics is this, is this huge thing these days. And the more Trump demonizes China, the, the more 
companies that have supply chains in China are going through their lobbyists to talk to the Trump administration and try and like temper some of that speech and some of those actions. And so I think I think Trump had been treating China as this total like like totally disconnected other in the world that mm-hmm. you could have this pick this fight with, but I think what he's coming to find is that there are a lot of U.S. interests in China's success and um, and steel and aluminum tariffs are hurting U.S. companies that have to import steel and aluminum from China because that kind of product is only made in China. And, and that's sort of the way the world works and what's been great about specialization um, in kind of the evolution of the international economy. And so, um, yeah, so I think the... Trump kind of vibe is to make China to really other China to make China this kind of classic other, but um, the the problem is that it's it's not it's really this is a global economy that's integrated, um, and so uh, even with as Trump is saying you know one night he or he'll tweet that we're going to impose tariffs out the wazoo technical term <laughs> and then doesn't quite do it the next day and and keeps taking actions that you know by an objective standard would be called a trade war but is is sort of unwilling to actually say those words out loud to say we're in a trade war it's all about we're on the brink of a trade war and things like that so um anyway so one way to read the china relationship is that trump is is trying to push it as much to an other, as much to like an, a trade enemy as possible, but really is having to roll that back. The more, the more I think that firms and economic pressures in the United States are showing him that China is not another, an other. It's not zero sum game. Or if they lose, we're also losing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has his tariffs on China been effective? Like, is there a winner in this, as he would put it? Or are both sides losing technically? How's it going so far in that? Yeah, so um, with the tariffs, um, there are really interesting things that happen within industries when there's a a new... uh, Economics doesn't have the best names for their theories. So there was new trade theory, and now there's new new trade theory, (laughs) which uh, is basically a theory that says big productive firms win in the world, and they're the ones that win a lot from international trade. Mm-hmm. And so, um, long story short, even when there are tariffs kind of putting gum in the works of international trade, we can see evidence that the biggest, the most productive firms in a given industry are the ones that are surviving that gum in the works because they're able to adjust around those additional costs or, or eat those costs for a little while and not lose market share and things like that. Um, so. Maybe ironically, the the winners um, from this kind of um, mean <laughs> trade policy are are the big corporations that maybe I don't know Trump's political base might also have a problem with. Um, um, and then there are interesting games to be played where um, strategic firms can figure out um, how to get around tariffs. So this is one. One thing that has come up with the NAFTA and the your USMCA renegotiations to say, okay, if if we're really going to cut down on the U.S. Canada Mexico triangle, then let's relocate to China and then ship through Mexico and then 
use the new TPP that's being signed to bypass the U.S. and put stuff on boats from Mexico and go to Canada and trade diversion. I mean, there, there's so there's still ways to make money in a in an economy in a world with tariffs. But suffice it to say, you got to be pretty creative to do it. And it's the big productive firms, the the big names in the world that are that continue to have record profits. And it's it's partially because they're the ones capable of, of doing this. So it really kills some of the smaller firms then, right? Yeah, I mean, and this is a lot of research that's going on now to see how um, small and medium-sized enterprises that don't have the same kind of lobbying power to begin with um, and um, really need to be compensated uh, for adverse trade policies, can't do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really can get competed out of business. Um, so, um, yeah, there are... In, in my field in political economy, we think all the time about distributional effects. So there's going to be winners and losers from things. And um, I guess the punchline from a lot of this new trade theory is that maybe it's not a surprise after all that the, the big productive firms can win and, and, and it's the smaller firms that can lose. And politically, smaller firms already have a harder time getting their voices heard. So it's sort of a double whammy for them. So another trade deal that Trump has uh, criticized and railed against is NAFTA. And he seems to really hate NAFTA, but he renegotiated NAFTA uh, in October 2018. So what did he accomplish with the renegotiation? Was anything really changed or is is everything about the same still? Yeah. So so NAFTA renegotiation has been fascinating to follow and... um, my take for a while was that um, the renegotiation was going to pick up on some content that was already in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's going to be kind of like picked up and copied and pasted into renegotiations in in NAFTA um, because the U.S., Mexico, and Canada had already agreed on a bunch of changes in that context, although Trump withdrew from that agreement. So that's partially what happened. Um, a lot of the changes in NAFTA into the USMCA now um, are just modernization changes that really are natural and expected um, in an agreement from 1994 to 2018. For example, NAFTA had very little to say about e-commerce. 1994, it wasn't such a big deal. But now you got to have some rules written down about what you're going to do about taxes on on e-commerce. So um, the joke sort of among trade economists and and observers is that um, Trump wanted NAFTA to be renegotiated, and all that really had to mean is that you name it something else. <laughs> so USMCA worked out, and now you can always think like the YMCA dance in your head when you <laughs> say USMCA out loud. Um, so um, from my point of view, one of the big changes has to do with this investor state dispute settlement, which is kind of a technical area, but it's an area in which uh, multinational corporations are allowed to sue governments Mm. um, for property rights violations. And so long story short, um, now U.S. companies can't sue Canada anymore, and U.S. companies can't sue Mexico anymore under, uh, or at least at that right is more constrained now. 
So that's going to change the dynamics a little bit about how foreign direct investment takes place. So not just trade, but also when a U.S. company decides to build a plant in Mexico or in Canada, um, what kind of political rights they might have. But, you know, long story short, I suppose this hasn't, I've been babbling for a while, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, there are changes in, in the USMCA. It has a new name, uh, but it didn't tear up the trade deal. It's evidence, again, of this legalization backlash thing that somehow NAFTA was bad because it was legalized, because it was law, because it had this kind of force, this force outside of sovereignty that's this supranational force. Mm -hmm. The USMCA still has that, a lot of that, but um, along the way in the renaming process, I think a lot of the rhetoric has been, you know, Trump got some wins out of the rhetoric to say that the U.S. isn't going to kowtow to international law, that our sovereignty comes first, even if the terms of the deal aren't really that different. So I think this speaks to like something I've heard a couple people say, and that's that he just wants to take Obama's name off things and put his name on them instead. Do you think there's uh, like credence to that argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he does like branding things. <laughs> and on a lot of buildings, yeah. So. <laughs> um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to know what's in our president's head sometimes, <laughs> all, maybe all the time. <laughs> but the, if that, that does seem like to an outside observer what might be going on, I guess the, the problem is when it comes to trade politics and how businesses are actually making their decisions, if we can't know for 100% certainty that he's going to be satisfied with just changing the name of something, we can't really know with 100% certainty what's going to happen next when he keeps making threats, even against China, even against Canada, even since the USMCA, still he, he likes to stir the pot here. And so firms like to make production decisions based on you know, some kind of credible information. Mm -hmm. And they like to know what's going to happen two years from now so they can keep that certainty going. Um, and so if Trump is has this backlash against legalization or even when he's going to re-sign a, a legalized agreement, still he's frustrated with it and mutters about it on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, I think that, that has real effects on, I mean, if I were a firm engaging in international trade, I would still be circumspect about how how much I think U.S.-Canadian trade ties are going to be solid going forward, mm -hmm. even though the USMCA was signed because Trump is still sort of talking like he's holding his nose and signing these things. So even if he's just trying to take Obama's name off, off of things, I think it still matters for, for jobs and for, um, yeah, for how, how firms are making money or not. Uh, another organization he's gone after is the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Um, and it seems like a lot of times he's saying that it's infringing on U.S. sovereignty. Um, what do you think of his method of attack against the WTO? And what do you think his goals are in attacking them? Well, the kind of default method of attack against the WTO has been not to nominate new judges effectively on like the, the court, so to speak, of mm -hmm. the WTO. So now the WTO has so few people working for it that it basically is grinding to a halt mm -hmm. <laughs> because the U.S. just won't participate. Um, 
which uh, is an annoying strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to just like do nothing strategy. Um, you know, calling out the WTO and saying it's infringing American sovereignty, it's sort of ironic in the great grand scheme of things because the U.S. has been crucial in, in setting up these international institutions. And yes, they do constrain American sovereignty, but they constrain everybody's sovereignty. And it's usually developing countries that are the ones that are saying these institutions are constraining their sovereignty. Um, so it's it's sort of funny, I guess, from a historical point of view that this is like his, this is his take mm. and making the U S sounding sound like almost like a victim of these institutions that the U S has created. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's hard to wrap one's head around that. Um, you know, the U S benefits a lot from the WTO and, um, and a lot of people have done a lot of research to show that, you know, for, for better or worse, the U S does not get, as hurt by losing at the WTO as other countries do. WTO rules say, okay, you sue the United States, you find a ruling against the United States, but there's no international, you can't put the United States in jail. And there's yeah. sort of, how do you enforce this? Well, the enforcement is that the other country can now retaliate against the United States. Like the other country could raise tariffs against the United States to kind of get paid back. Well, you know what? Other countries don't do that. Like yeah. countries get rulings against the United States or, or towards that that place, but they know that they're going to lose from retaliating against the United States. And so honestly, I mean, the WTO does constrain U.S. policy and, and it has it has shaped U.S. policy. But the U.S. has a lot of room to move in international organizations. So if it's it's tough when Trump is saying the WTO is too constraining on U.S. sovereignty because it's. If that's too constraining, then it's hard to imagine any international organization that's <laughs> that's going to work for, for the Trump administration. And then it's frustrating because a walk back from international cooperation really, I mean, the world benefits. I know no one votes for the world, <laughs> but like the world benefits from international cooperation. So, yeah, it's it's a weird target to target the WTO. And um, it's. It's um, it's also pushing China to become this new champion of global integration in a way. Like Xi Jinping stands up at international conferences, and he's the one making speeches about openness and global integration, which are usually what the American representatives would do. Mm -hmm. uh, after the USMCA was signed, Trudeau, in his signing ceremony, said something like, yeah, Basically, we signed this with the U.S., but now we're turning to the global trade regime. And so th there's a real <laughs> there's a, there's a possibility that others are going to pick up the mantle where the U.S. dropped it. And the U.S. is big and powerful, but maybe it's not big and powerful enough to to stop that from happening. Yeah, I think Macron just the other day said something where he called the U.S. an enemy along with uh China and Russia. Oh, okay. As a oh. threat, threat to the, to the, to Europe as a whole. Huh. He included huh. the U.S. as a threat. Yeah. Um, but kind of going in that line, this might be a tough question to answer. Under the Trump administration, who exactly is an ally, an economic ally, and who exactly is an economic opponent? That's a very that is a trick, a weirdly <laughs> tricky yeah. uh, question to answer, and um, because it seems like countries are 
countries are subbing in and out of ally and and opponents um, in in funny ways. Maybe it's a good the the meta issue here is that in an economically integrated world, countries aren't so clearly one or the other mm-hmm. because companies are are in dense networks, either they're multinational, so they have ownership abroad, or they're subcontracting, or they have dense supply chains around the world and, mm-hmm. and global value chains and all kinds of connections that um, make it hard to to call one country something or one thing or the other. I mean, maybe Iran is a good example because the U.S. and now with new sanctions, maybe the U.S. again doubling down on cutting down and, and eliminating business with Iran. Europe has a hard time implementing such sanctions if even if they politically wanted to because of supply chain connections and sometimes when you go supplier to supplier to supplier there are traces back where that network links out to a country like Iran and um, so it's hard to enforce rules against countries it's hard to make countries bad guys or good guys um, because business has has crossed has really crossed borders Um, so it it's again. It's it's this idea that Trump's return to power politics in economic relations is sort of just setting himself up for failure because we just can't. It's just not true that China is an is an ally or an adversary. It sort of depends on what industry you're looking at and what firm you're looking at, and um, and. You know, that's sort of how the world has set itself, has set the economy up for the last decades so that we can't call countries allies or adversaries anymore. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's grating with the international agenda that the, the post-World War II economic institutions have built. Now, in looking at everything we just talked about, do you think uh, President Trump's economic ideals or policies have been effective or do you think they've been pretty much kind of by the wayside? Yeah. And this is this classic question, like, what does it mean to be effective? Because if we were economists talking here, maybe we, we would say have, has implementing tariffs, you know, caused economic growth or increased jobs or anything. And we can, you know, point very clearly that, like, economic principles 101, like, tariffs can hurt <laughs> and can be bad for economic outcomes. But politically, I don't know. I mean, um, he's definitely been able to shape narratives um, in the U.S. and shape the agenda as to what's on the U.S. kind of global economic integration agenda. Uh, But if the rest of the world picks up the mantle of international trade, if it's China leading the way and Trudeau and Canada kind of turning away and if other countries want to pick up the Trans-Pacific Partnership and and run with that, um, you know, maybe in a longer term, bigger picture economic integration point of view, it's hard to see that this has been an effective strategy. So my last question is, um, Trump has been president now for two years. Uh, He's got two years left in this first term. Uh, He could have four more years if you add in a possible second term. What do you think his goals would be in either of those instances? Well, he's clearly benefiting a lot from like a like bubbling stock markets and and economic growth and and the, the full employment um, 
so if if and when i cuz these things always happen right that we get a recession or or things stop growing um, he's going to have to turn really quickly, I think, to, to implementing economic policies that would push, push growth. And that means um, less time and attention to kinds of policies that would hurt growth but address other social issues like, like I don't know, if he wants to trade off growth with immigration priorities or something. Um, so... You know, if magically the economy stayed perfect for two years or six years, he could keep going the way he is. But um, that's certainly not going to happen. And I guess, you know, one practical thing is he's he's sort of got to figure out what he wants out of this Federal Reserve a little more. He, mm-hmm. He's so the Federal Reserve in times of real economic like hot economy like now, they start to think about raising interest rates um, to stop things from overheating. And he's, you know, calling out by name, like yelling at the Federal Reserve on Twitter, which is a funny thing for a president to do. It's not not usual. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but the, the, the system is working how the institutions are set up for it to work. So long story short, he's benefited, I think, from a good economy to give him room to play with these power politics issues. But once that goes away, um, you know, it, it he has less room to play because people are going to be losing their jobs or wages already. Yes, they're going up a little bit, but, you know, in, they really still are stagnant in, in the very long run view. And so when those things start to bite more, um, I don't know, I think the Republican Party is going to start to push him back to, okay, let's do more traditional Republican economic policy issues and stop with these games, I guess. Professor Wilhausen, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Page One. Thanks to my guest, Rachel Wilhausen, and a continued thanks to the Page One team. If you like what you've heard, spread the word or give us a review. We appreciate either. Subscribe to Page One on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Email us at pageonepod at gmail.com with comments or questions, and follow us at pageonepod on Twitter. See you soon.